Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey, holistic registered dietitian and author of Decolonizing Wellness. This show and my work overall is dedicated to amplifying the health and happiness of BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus people. Today, we are joined by Nakia Outlin, the founder of Prevention Meets Fashion. She's a Black, queer, single mother of three. She's a social worker, sex educator, sex therapist in training, and a professor at Temple University with an extensive background in advocacy, consulting, and community organizing. She's passionate about finding creative ways to engage Black, LGBTQIA plus communities. Nakia's work focuses on addressing stigma and inequality in sexual health and reproductive health through fashion, advocacy, community, and education. Nakia and I had this conversation quite a while ago, so I'm excited to be able to bring it to you today. At the time that the episode was recording, the website for Prevention Meets Fashion wasn't up. Now it is, so you can see that in the show notes, Prevention Meets Fashion, and check out the events calendar. I love that the Condom Streetwear Fashion Show is an annual event. Nikia has a lot of fabulous things going on through this nonprofit. It was really interesting to hear about her creative process and what brought her to form the nonprofit. Before we jump right into that conversation, I want to remind you that I will be hosting my first in-person retreat in Bali next March. That's March 2023. So if you're hearing this and it's pre-March 2023, there may still be space. So be sure to visit daliakenzie.com slash retreat to see the details. It's going to be an amazing event. It's going to be centered as always on LGBTQA plus BIPOC people. However, if you are not an LGBTQA plus BIPOC person, that doesn't mean that you can't come to the retreat. There will be a couple of healing circle events that'll be sacred spaces for QT BIPOC folks. So those will not be events where everybody can come in and take up space. However, there will be plenty of other events that are for everyone. So if you are interested in taking a more liberatory approach to your wellness and you've done a lot of work on your own and you feel like this could be a catalyst for your growth and you're ready, then definitely check it out. It isn't going to be a beginner oriented event as far as healing work goes. If you've never done therapy, if you've never read a self-help book, if you've never been in any sort of coaching situation, and if you're kind of new to the concept of systemic oppression having an impact on your wellness, then it's probably not the place for you to start. The retreat really is designed for people who already have an awareness of these things and are wanting to dig deeper and really wanting to be in a space where they can totally unwind and focus on the physical experience of comfort and freedom in their body so that it's something we'll be able to recreate with ease when we get back home. The facilities are gorgeous. We'll have a chef cooking for us three meals a day. There are lots of excursions planned. 
We're going to spend time one-on-one with a Balinese healer. There will be massages. It's going to be really luxurious, but then at the same time, a little crunchy, which is totally my vibe. So we'll have a touch of the outdoors. We'll be in an eco-friendly setting, but then at the same time, we're going to have access to all of our creature comforts. It's going to be great. If you can join us, you absolutely should. Again, check it out, dallykinsey.com retreat. All right, let's get on into this conversation. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. My name is Nikia Outland. I am the founder and president of Prevention Meets Fashion Incorporated. We are a 501c3 nonprofit um, based in Philadelphia, but we will go anywhere. And our mission is to increase sexual health and knowledge in communities of color, Black, LGBTQIA, and non-binary communities through fashion, advocacy, community, and education, which stands for FACE. It is a model that I created to be able to look at the intersections of sexual health, reproductive health, racial injustice, disability um, rights, all the other, what I call social determinants of health as well, into one model instead of just naming them all the time. Uh, We look at the intersections of how any of those can be placed in fashion, how any of those can be placed in advocacy and in community and in education which to our advantage came out of space, which is a ballroom category, which <laughs> we're very excited about because my favorite category in ballroom is space. I just love when the community comes out and shine that way. Like it seems like nothing else matters but that person's face. And, and to see that in community that's really been, you know, hurt so many times again and again, especially Black LGBTQ folks, that just lights my world up when I go to ballroom competitions. But yes, I'm so excited to um, finally be a nonprofit. What a lot of people don't know is that we've actually been around for four years. Once I really started getting into the nitty gritty of prevention meets fashion, I realized that it would it would be so much better as in a nonprofit structure to be able to open ourselves to getting grants, to getting more support, to writing more curriculum and programming. So a lot of folks that follow us on Instagram, they just, you know, sometimes think that we just post, but that's the labor of love of hours of research, of putting snippets together to to have those words in the little in the little caption. I actually take the time, my interns take the time, my volunteers take the time to research things to make sure that we're getting our perspective right, to make sure that we're getting voices heard on our Instagram. We take it very seriously. I said, I once said when I started this is that to me that Instagram is just not a place for us to post pretty pictures. This is really is more than it for us. I remember when I first started, I talked about how I use fashion to come out to my family over a certain number of years as queer. 
And I showed a picture of when I got my hair shaved on one side and how freeing that was to me for many aspects. For one, I had just lost my partner. So you weren't a kid. You were an adult living outside the home. Yes. And so I had just lost my partner. And, you know, so when I had shaved the side of my head, it, it was a freeing moment, not only for me verbalizing my queer identity, but also that, that I was shedding something that reminded me of my partner. They always liked my hair. So I was talking about that and someone took my whole face, whole caption, put it on their, their Instagram and they tagged me and I, and people were tagging me like, this is your face. And I'm like, do you know that I'm a real person? And they literally were using it. The message was correct. I thank them for that, but I'm a real person. Like you use my whole face and my whole story. Was this person a member of the community? Yes, this person was a member of the community and a fellow uh, sex educator. And this was not the first time that they did this. They actually took other posts and I had to call them out on it, you know? And I don't want to do that, but at least give me my credit, especially when it's my faith. So I, I stopped a little bit from actually using my images. And the purpose of me using my images was one, for people to know that I'm a real person, but for two, to show representation to young queer Black folks out there that, that don't get seen as much. And to let them know that, you know, we're here, we're in every profession, you know, come and visit us, you know? And... <laughs> And so I was like really taken back by this. So I stopped showing my image for a while, but then the pandemic happened and people were, were like, you know, I don't think people know that you're black owned and queer owned because you don't have no pictures of yourself anymore. So I, I began posting pictures of myself again, posting pictures of my intern, posting pictures of my community and stuff that I was doing. I do admit that I am a little bit shy. And I don't give myself enough credit with prevention meets fashion. I am a social worker by trade. And I decided to take everything and all of my experience. And I absolutely adore the meaning behind fashion and how is they used in Black communities, how is they used in queer communities. Oftentimes when our voices were silenced, our clothes were allowed, right? Interesting that you made the point, though, that people don't understand how damaging it is to a small creator or small business to steal ideas. But that is the story of the Black creatives' lives. Like, that's the story of small queer businesses. Because you think about all the ways in which queer folks, especially queer folks of color, lead the way with culture and with fashion and how often is that stolen and the original designer creator doesn't ever see the profits that come from their original baby their original idea and i i struggle too along the lines just to piggyback off of that i struggle with the black designers who have made it and a lot of them, I listen to a lot of them speak and how they built this from the ground up and then they make it, so to speak, and then they give credit to the Italian designer. 
to the white designer. Mm. Like, oh, if I wasn't underneath their fashion house, then my name wouldn't be out there. The same thing with music. Like, why do we feel like we have to partner with someone that don't look like us to make us big, right? And I, and I, I, I struggle with that. And so well, you- in social worker, can you speak to that? Because I've seen that issue even in myself, even as I've decided to center my show, to center my work around my queer identity and my POC identity, I still find myself being drawn when people like dangle something in front of me that's not serving the community that I believe I'm meant to serve and I'm called to serve. I still feel like, oh, it's this shiny object because I, like so many people, was raised to think proximity to whiteness is proximity to success. Mm -hmm. And even though, especially the way things are shifting now, we definitely don't need them. People need us. Mm -hmm. But because we're the ones who've been socialized to believe the opposite, we keep falling for it. Yeah. So what do you do when you see that in yourself? Is that something that can only be addressed on a systemic level? Were you never affected by that? I think I would be lying if I say I wasn't affected by that. Even if you look at my identity as a social worker, right? I was trained as a social worker. A lot of the curriculum is based on white supremacist thoughts and ideals and racism. And it wasn't until last year that I found out that it's a whole curriculum around African-centered social work. I've been a social worker for over 15 years, and I never, ever, outside of the uh, Black NASW, I never knew it was a social work curriculum around African-centered and how to work with Black and African communities. Hmm. And so I started taking those courses and, and webinars during the pandemic to help myself unlearn the white supremacist culture and ideologies that I was perpetuating. You know, the whole fact white supremacy culture values individualism, right? And that you make it and worry about everything else later. For a Black community and Black queer communities, what's innate to us is to have a village behind us. But yet I was pushing back on this because it's like I was conditioned and raised to you're an individual. Yes. And we get on these young rappers, these young kids when they make it and they bring their village with them. Yes, it's some folks that you don't necessarily need to bring with you. And that's a different story. But the fact that we get on them for bringing their community with them, that's something that's innate to them and they don't know it. You know, I was even talking about how we was taught to look at pouring liquor out as being something bad, right? And it wasn't until I started really looking into our culture that we did this historically. We did this to our ancestors. We do that when we do libations, right? Right. You know, I've even looked into fashion and, and death and how cultures around the world use fashion symbolize death and how our young folks do that with T-shirts, Right. And so the T-shirts is so much more powerful. And I, I talked about this on my Instagram and how a T-shirt is not just a T-shirt. It has a lot of social justice and a lot of racism behind a T-shirt. Because if you think about it, T-shirts were made out of cotton. Black folks picked the cotton, but Black folks couldn't afford to have the whitest of the white. 
So when you could afford the whitest of the white, you know, it was value. So you, you didn't go outside. You didn't get dirty in those. You know, those were your Sunday's best. That was for you dressing up to put on this image that we're not poor, that we're not these feeble-minded people that people that don't look like us thought that we were. So if you look at that today, think about how we get dressed up to go to work. Think about how we get dressed up to go in in town. You know, all of those things, whether these young folks or even us know that we're doing it, it has historical roots. And that's what we want to bring to Prevention Means Fashion. We really want folks to understand that fashion is not frivolous. It means a lot. And to look at it as such is, is doing it a disjustice. You know, us wanting nice things comes from a historical racist background. You know, we, yeah. we wanted our, our parents, our grandparents, our great-great-grandparents wanted us to have nice things. Nice things meant something. Ben, I don't know if you've had a chance to visit the African-American History Museum in D.C. So there's that the way they've got it set up. It's basically you start out at the roughest points in Black American history. And then as you go up in the building, you know, we bounce back. (laughs) So you're like traumatized. Then they have this resting area. It's really pretty where people break down, you know, there's like water flowing where you can just relax and recover. And then you continue on up and you get to where people are clearly developing their own culture, which is a blend of who we were before we were brought to the United States and who we became here. And there's this big section on fashion after the civil war among black Americans being so incredibly important as not just a status marker, but part of that desire to prove and validate your humanity through things that people can see as soon as they see you. So part of it was definitely beautiful when you think about the intentions behind it, then heartbreaking when you think about how many of us internalize that belief that we have to prove and validate our humanity mm-hmm. instead of just letting white supremacy be the white supremacist problem to a large extent. But it really explains why that's such a big part of Black American culture to be well-dressed and why we still give people the side eye when they come to church in holy jeans and flip-flops, like how that's like beyond most Black folks' comprehension, but you see it all the time in white American churches. But they don't have to validate their humanity. So they don't have that same tradition of you need to try and wear your status markers. Last month on the 20th, we had our annual fashion condom show and our theme was wearing social justice. And so we want the designers who were novice designers from the community. Everything that we do at Prevention Station is community-based and community-led. And so we had these designers and we wanted to see their interpretations of wearing social justice. So folks picked to do condom designs as bell-bottoms, condom designs as denim, as books that resemble like the disco ball for music and vests 
in hair because, you know, right now we're going through hair discrimination laws and in Pennsylvania, they still haven't signed on to the crown egg. And so it was amazing. Oh, what is that? I haven't, I don't think I know what that is. So the crown egg is a, a bill that is trying to get passed in each state to ban hair discrimination among black folk. Oh. Right to wear our own hair. So yeah. we have to get a law to, have to, to, to be able to wear our own hair and to be able to wear <gasps> the styles that we created for creativity, for style, for survival. We have to have a law to be able to do that. Wow. I mean, I knew that that was needed. I didn't think we were anywhere near that point. So I didn't even know because you see, I have my hair dreaded, but I live in a very black area and a lot of the stigma has fallen away. But I know when I first dreaded my hair, people still told me, oh, you won't ever be able to get a job with your hair dreaded. But I actually told HR I was doing it before I did it, which is ridiculous that I would have to because yeah. so nat such a natural style, but it was never an issue, but everyone around me kept saying it would be. And that wasn't because they were paranoid. That was based on real experiences they had had. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like what you said, like unpacking what you said about you having to go to HR to see if you could lock your hair. Right. And I don't ever think or heard of a conversation where someone that wasn't black had to go to HR and say, can I dye my hair blonde? We think about things like that. I remember when I first started coloring my hair, which I was well into my career. I've always wanted to color my hair, but that helped me back because I needed a job. You know, I had mm -hmm. kids. I needed to provide for myself. But I got to this point in my life where I just said, I feel like I'm going to color my hair. So I <laughs> went to the extreme. The first thing I did was dye my hair blue and then it went to green and then it went to blonde. I was affirmed at my job because it's an LGBTQ organization, but I don't think if I would have stayed in counseling, that would have been appropriate, right? And I don't know if I would have been as happy because that's the way I express myself through my hair. I express myself in my clothes. So those jobs where I had to wear suits and shoes all day, I, I just couldn't do it. I really couldn't. Like, I had no problem wearing a suit, but I want to put on sneakers with it. You know, right. I put on a platform with it, or I want to wear military boots. I don't want to have to look at or to appear as people think women identify folks should look. Yes. Well, and that's a whole nother layer, I think, with identity and clothing is if you don't identify in a super binary way, then it creates even more anxiety for you to be in work environments that are really rigid about how they want people to dress. Because it's an important, maybe to some people it's not important at all, but to me, even the fact that I really like plain clothes is a big part of my identity. It required some level of awareness about how much I detested dresses to get to this plain point that we're at right now. This was a process. <laughs> so in your experience professionally, how much does the stress of having to dress in ways that don't suit you, how negative of an impact can that have on people? 
Well, it definitely can have a, a negative impact on your mental health. I mean, it it does have an impact on your mental health, right? Because I think we throw around the time if you um, look good, you feel good a lot. But it's actually true. It's actually, when you look good and feel good, it's actually science behind it. And the endorphins and everything that's in your, that, that feel good in your body, it, it increases that, you know? I know that when, you know, my eyebrows not done or my hair not done, I feel completely down and you can tell in my clothes because I dress that way as well. And then when I get my eyebrows done, I feel like everything is better. It definitely has a connection. And I've talked about it numerous times on our Instagram and in, in person. And so, so even like what you said, even the folks who get up and don't want to iron and just throw something on, you're intentionally thinking, whether you realize it or not, that's your aesthetic. You're intentionally doing that. That's what you like to wear, you know? So I, I really don't like when folks say, oh, they can't dress. Who we dress to what they think they, they should be dressing like or, or what someone told them they look nice in and they keep repeating that over and over instead of looking inside and, and figuring out what do I like? What do I look nice in? And taking that component and then building upon it. So what yeah. we try to teach people to do is what, first off, like what, what makes you feel good? Let's start here, right? Don't look in this magazine or social media or whatever you're looking at and, and copy someone else's feel good outfit. Because most of the time, that's a stylist put that on that person. They might not even like what they, what they put on. A stylist put that on them, right? So what makes you feel good? And let's build upon that. And this is your look. It's, it's no one way to be or dress queer. Yeah. And I think when we Google how to dress queer, you get white, skinny folks. You know, always. you don't get, or if you do get a black image, it's always us in this mask, mask of center look, mm. right? You don't get that androgynous type person. And I consider my aesthetic very androgynous and, and, and athletic. You don't get that. I'm a chameleon. My clothes, you will get anything from super sexy to super athletic wear. And I merge them somehow because that's me, you know? But it took me years to figure that out. It took me years to be comfortable with that. Tell me more about your journey to this point, because I know for a lot of people, fashion is so problematic because it's been linked to promoting only one body type as attractive, promoting a lot of classism and a lot of fixation on really just keeping the fashion machine going. So we think about fast fashion and there was a time in U.S. history where it would have been normal to get clothes from someone who made them in the community. And these would be clothes that would last you a very long time. They were probably cut to fit your particular body the way you wanted it to fit and you could wear it for years. Whereas now you see a lot of manipulation in the marketing to push people to say, this is what you should be wearing right now. And it just doesn't feel like a good place to a lot of people when it comes to self-expression. So what was your journey like with your relationship with fashion? And when did you see 
the connection between your social work and the sexual health background that you have and what you're doing now? My connection to fashion began early on. Um, my parents were military parents. And so when they got out of the military and I was old enough to be able to look at things and, and see, and understand their military background, we will look in these huge photo albums and I would just like adore my mom and like her bell bottoms and her afro. I have finer hair, as you can see, really loose wave like type thing. My, my mom has really coarse hair. I always envy not being able to have an afro. I never had that type of hair, like, you know, and so, and I joke, my dad doesn't have hair anymore, but my mom's like, you have his side of the family hair. And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so, and so I grew up looking at these photo albums and looking at my mom at bell bottoms and, you know, clogs and all this other stuff. So I would like, I immediately gravitated towards all of that because of course I wanted to look like my mom. But slowly, but surely, my mom took this to the extreme and started putting me in girly, girly stuff, like, you know, all the lace and everything was one color and I rebelled. And so she started taking me to the store and like, what do you want? And I'm very close to my brother. And so I'm like, I want to look like my brother. And so I would pick out sweatpants and like a real big shirt. And I had body self-conscious issues. I didn't realize until I got older, like why boys and men, like now I know that they were sexualizing me. So I didn't like that attention. I started putting on baggier clothes, but yet I was still put on a hill. So I would wear the bag, the, the, the style you see now, I did back in the 90s, right? And so I didn't see that until Mary J came out and I literally broke down and cried because I was like, here's this woman who was like wearing baggy jeans, wearing baggy shirts, but yeah, yes. I didn't oh. even think of that as a turning point. Yeah. But yeah, now that you say it, that totally resonates. Yeah. So, you know, it was first that little Kim stage, that overly sexy stage. I went through that and my mom allowed me to, like, I credit my mom a lot for allowing me to, to develop who I am today. Over time, I, again, I started coming into my fashion aesthetic, which obviously I went back to the athletic wear, but as I was developing, that was where I was leaning toward. And it was this point in my life where I know I started realizing that I was attracted to other genders other than the opposite gen a gender. I didn't really act on it when I was younger because me wearing the sweatpants and the shirts, like, I remember the first time someone called me a dyke and I cried. So I stopped dressing like that and went overly sexy again, right? Totally not me. And I was trying so hard. And that was even before you started noticing that you were also attracted to women? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. And, and so then, you know, it was my brother who was like, you know, stop this. You know, he's younger, a year younger than me. He's like, stop this. You, you be here. Like. So what? Like, if they call you a dyke, you'll be the best dyke. It doesn't even matter. Like, you, you'll be you. You don't, you don't change for no one else. You don't do it. You dress the way you want to dress. So then, you know, I started, you know, dialing down the bagginess and, and came to a happy medium. But over that time, I started realizing that I was using my fashion to come out. I was using my fashion to display my mood. Fashion actually helped my mood. 
I was really depressed when I was younger. I was a teen mom twice, but when I became a mom at 17, of course that dialed back because now I had to put that money into my child. And it, I remember friends that went to high school with me was like, oh, she fell off. You know, I knew it wasn't going to last. Like, it was almost like they was waiting for it to like, I knew that she wasn't going to dress this way anymore. You know, now she's a mom. And I'm like, no, it's the quite opposite. I can still afford it, but is it worth it? You know, my priorities started to shift. Now it was going to my two children that I had to raise, right? And so it wasn't that I fell off, I grew up, you know? And I think folks, they grow up at their own rate. And so when I see folks spending all this money on stuff and making them happy, I, I'm like, don't know, who, who cares what anyone else say? If you want to spend $400 on a belt, spend it, you know? But just make sure that your priorities are straight as well, you know? As a social worker, how do you tell the difference between a maladaptive coping mechanism that is hurting the person and they probably actually need something else, something more sustainable and something that just, it doesn't hurt, you know, or, or it really is something that brings them joy. How do you recognize the difference in yourself even? I mean, well, of course I did self-assessment, but for clients, I, I do a little assessment, right? And I, I don't shame them. I remember it was this client who, and I just told this story, but I remember it was a client who just got diagnosed with HIV. I remember this, and she was a young mother, had three cute little boys, and she was living in a bandomenium, and she just wanted to keep buying her sons these Jordans. And of course, Jordans are $100, so depending on the size of your feet apiece. So she was spending close to $500 every couple of months on sneakers, but yet living in a bandominium. And so I didn't shame her for it. But when she came in, I, you know, I said, oh, those are really nice sneakers. But what would that look like if you had took just $100 of that and went to the sneaker store and let's say for some Nikes, some $40 Nikes for each of your kids or Target, some light up sneakers because they were little. What would that have looked like? And then save the rest for you to be able to get a hotel room so you can have all your kids in one space or save up to get an apartment so that you can have running water and heat. What would that have looked like? So I challenged this client without shaming them to look at how they were spending their money. Yes, that made you feel good because you needed it. You needed to feel good about your situation that you was in. So it made you feel good to be able to buy your kids these sneakers, to be able to have your kids look like other kids. But in the interim, you were hurting yourself and you were hurting your kids because you really didn't have it, right? And so I take approaches like that with clients, especially when they use fashion as a coping tool. Fashion does not solve everything. You can put on a million dollars worth of clothes and still be sad and depressed or hate your body. We need to fix that. And then you can add those other layers on. For some folks, yeah. you know, clothing protects them, but that protection is temporary. When you take that off, then what? You just, you, you have to be satisfied with who you're looking at. Yeah. mirror. So it, it, it's definitely is much deeper, you know? And so through that, we, we created our affirming fashion program, which is a program where we give clients 
clothing on an emergency uh, basis. So we don't have an income threshold or anything. If you need clothing, you need clothing. And if we have it, we're going to give it to you. We also do groups about affirming fashion and surveys to get the community feel of what affirms you. You know, we have a lot of gender non-conforming, um, non-binary folks that follow us and it's affirming to them to have fashion that affirms their identity. And so we, we want to do that. We want to be this resource. So we, we definitely talk about how fashion is affirming, how fashion is self-care and how fashion is more than a look at prevention fashion. I think affirming clothes can be really tough if you're still a kid and you don't get to make those decisions or maybe you just don't have the money to dress yourself the way you want to. I've seen a couple of nonprofits helping with things like binders, but then I've also wondered for younger kids too, how do you guide people on dressing in a way that affirms your gender that can't also hurt you? Because some people are so deeply uncomfortable and they're not in a position to get surgery now and they want to bind 24 hours a day, you know, does the nonprofit also deal with education around that piece? Sometimes you can't get 100% there with what it's going to take for you to really be comfortable and be yourself. But we, in the meantime, we, you don't want to hurt yourself. Yes, we actually do. But we actually bring folks in to talk about it. I could read a million books on binding and what it's like, but part of being a community organization is getting those folks with that lived experience. So we absolutely bring folks in or connect folks to resources that they can then ask those questions to someone. I never want to speak on something that I haven't really experienced or, or feel that I don't know enough about. And binding is one of those things. Like, I know that it can be affirming, but I also know from the medical side how damaging it can, it can be, right? So I definitely connect folks to the needed resources that they need to get those questions, especially with younger uh, kids, because they shouldn't be binding 24 hours a day. You know, I do know that it's a time limit depending on how old you are with how long you should be binding, or even if it's appropriate to bind at that age, whatever age it is. As far as clothes go, I really haven't had any younger parents really talk to me about that. It's mainly teenagers and up, but younger folks, I really haven't had anyone, and now that you brought it up, but watch I get a call. I really haven't had any younger folks or parents talk to me about how they can dress their younger kids and affirm, affirm them. For one, I commend the parent if they do reach out to me because then that means that they're a step ahead of parents who absolutely would not be loving it at all. Right. Um, and so I definitely want to guide them in the right um, direction as far as affirming fashion and, and wearing the clothes that affirms the youth. But also we got a small grant to hire community members to teach technical skills such as sewing and crocheting. And, oh, and the, the premise behind that was to also get LGBTQ folks and Black folks involved in STEM and how STEAM and how STEAM can be a part of fashion, you know, taking that A and doing something with it. 
but also to give folks a starter for how you can make your own clothes if you can't afford. Because let's be honest, a farming clothes costs a lot. You know, it, it, a dragonous type clothes or all those clothes, they cost a lot. There was a time in the 90s when, remember, almost everybody still was sewing as a hobby and there were craft stores everywhere and fabric was not expensive. But as fast fashion got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, it became more expensive to make your own clothes. Mm-hmm. There were always clothes that you could, of course, shop in the men's section, which I used to do a lot before puberty, before right. these inconvenient curves got in the way that make menswear implausible sometimes without mm-hmm. altering. Right. Altering is a really, really handy skill because if you thrift, mm-hmm. then you could alter your clothes to make them more gender affirming. And that's the premise behind the sewing. And so Daisy is our instructor who's coming on board and they use she and they uh, pronouns. They, they are all about like teaching mending and how to upcycle. And that's something that we want because let's say you get clothes from my affirming fashion program or you go to another, like a trans clothing closet or a thrift store or whatever and you want to make it your own. Now you have these soft skills to be able to make this outfit your own using other stuff that's in your house. So oh, they want to talk about how you can take a t-shirt apart and use parts of it to make this, how you can, if you have jeans that's really old, how you can take the pockets off and, and make something else out of it or make a pocketbook out of it or a book bag or bag or whatever you want to call it. So using what you have to be able to lessen that financial barrier that's out there. Because right now, as you said a few minutes ago, like it's very performative. Every designer right now has a genderless fashion line right now because, again, they think that folks like you and I are trends and we're, we're not. No. It, it's heartbreaking to know that if you're someone who maybe hasn't thought it through or you're kind of new to the concept that like this always happens you know a smaller group of people has a need and the dominant culture refuses to fill it or address it Mm -hmm. and the smaller group creates their own solution and then everybody sees the sales and swoop in and put the smaller companies out of business Mm -hmm. so i could see some people thinking oh this is great look at what zara's doing all of a sudden and thinking oh this company supports me they see me Mm -hmm. maybe they do maybe they don't like i'm not trying to throw any shade at them in particular but think of all the other companies who have to charge higher prices because they've got smaller production and maybe also they have ethical production Mm-hmm. It just happens to cost more money. There are so many levels mm-hmm. to the benefits and really thinking about, oh, what's a garment that's going to last? Once your sense of fashion kind of levels out, I mean, there are some people who just love to continually buy accessories, but I feel like as I've gotten older, now that I know exactly what I feel best in, mm-hmm. I don't really have any desire to keep adding things to my wardrobe. Mm-hmm. I pretty much wear things till the wheels fall off and then <laughs> replace them with well, something that almost looks exactly the same. <laughs> well, you definitely, I'm blanking on the term, but I think it is called a uh, repetitive fashion. 
And you're not the only one that does it. Like Simon Cowell does it, right? White t-shirt, basic pants, right? You're not the only one that does that. And this is actually a psychology behind why folks do that. You know, it's because people remember that. That's your brand. That's your look. So people think that they think that they're being not intentional, but they are being intentional, if that makes sense. Right. And another thing about the pandemic, like over the pandemic, I started posting about shopping your own closet. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we have those staples in our closet, but because we keep adding stuff on top of stuff, they get buried. They get buried. So I challenge people to go into their closet, take everything out and look at everything. Right. And put it into, I wore it. I don't wear it. You know, needs to be donated type of piles. And I even challenge myself to do it because I'm one of those people that see something and like, oh, I don't have this. I'm glad I'll go in my closet and I'm like, oh, shoot. I, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't organized. And so I challenge myself to get organized and to look at what I had in my closet and just add staples that I didn't have instead of rebuying, rebuying, and rebuying. And I donated a lot. I gave a lot as well. I am a fan of clothing swap. But of course, when COVID happened, a lot of folks, you know, weren't able to do that. A lot of folks, you know, especially with the information going out that COVID could live on your clothes, it could. And, you know, people were really afraid to like swap clothes and stuff like that. But I'm a fan of that because, you know, I can give someone something that I no longer wear and get something that's essentially new because that's what you're looking for, right? That's the feeling that you're looking for, that you're getting something new, that you're getting a package. And I know you asked earlier, how does that lead into sexual health? And that is one of the love languages, right? To receive stuff. So I think that's why I also gravitate towards fashion and and stuff like that, because that's something you can receive. And I know that's my love language. I love to receive and I love to give, right? So that's how it also relates to sexual health, but also... We've been talking about how it relates to sexual health since we began this conversation and that we're talking about identities and expression and all of that is followed up in sexual health. Sexual health is not just about sex. It's about the mind, body, and spirit. It's about everything. And so when you look good, you feel good, when you're comfortable in what you're in, you're able to express that and have that confidence with your partner or partners. You know, a lot of times people don't wear lingerie or don't wear, you know, cute underwear because they're not happy with their body, right? And what would that look like to have a partner that be like, you know what, you you look nice in those those boxers. It doesn't have to be face or what you see on TV or any of that. You look in 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 those boxers, right? And just that one little thing could change someone's whole mood and feeling, you know, instead of them looking at what society projects that is appealing or to the gate, whether it's, you know, a male or female game, you know? Right, um, right. And, and so I know I've, I've had to personally check people because I don't like cutesy, cutesy underwear. I don't like it. Give me a pair of boxers in a heartbeat. I will, <laughs> I will wear boxers. Like, I like boy shorts. I like boxers. I like full coverage underwear. I don't yeah. like thongs. And, and again, as a 
as someone who studies sexual health, that's not good for folks with, with vaginas anyway. It, it, it can cause micro lesions. Like it, it's just not sanitary. Oh, so that, so underwear like that, that's not good for vaginal health could probably increase your risk for STIs because you'll have more tiny cuts that you yeah, can't see. That you don't now that's a bigger sham. That's a, I think of all the layers because the part of the country where I was raised in, sex ed in the school system was basically abstinence. And that was also kind of the story at home. So certainly didn't get any kind of sex ed that would be useful for same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. And even when you go to a physician, even now in 2021, no one seems to know anything about STIs between women. No one seems to know. Like there's just not enough research there or maybe people aren't going to continuing ed classes. I don't know what's going on, but there's so many knowledge deficits that I feel we have. And then there's so many things that culturally cis women in particular have been trained to do that compromise your sexual health even further, like removing all of your pubic hair. Mm -hmm. That was another barrier that could help prevent STIs. And Oh, wow. And nobody tells you this stuff before you remove it. And what if you removed it permanently, which a lot of people did when that became popular? But people to today still don't care. I, during our our condom fashion show, I did a condom party and I talked about all things condoms because we always do that for our condom party. And someone that was on the Zoom was like, well, I was showing them a dental dam and showing them how to use a dental dam. And they were like, well, the person I'm with need to remove their hair. And I said, why? You know, and they couldn't tell me why, because I just always thought they need to remove their hair before oral sex, right? I'm like, no, do you remove your hair before you ask for oral sex? This was a male, someone with a penis. And I'm like, do you remove your hair before you ask for it? So why are you asking your partner who they disclosed was a cis female to remove their hair if you're not removing your hair with, right. like, think of the 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 double standards there right you know and this is also with images you see right you see you see these images of getting waxed and and everything for female identified folks but you never see male identified folks get waxed and if you do they put them in they automatically put them into the gay category oh they're gay like no you know waxing is not an identity right you know it's a choice like either you wax or you or you or you don't wax you know, but that should be someone's choice. I've right. told people to, if that's something that you want to do, wax or shave, use it as a partner, a partner uh, activity. Like use it as eroticism. Like you shave me, I'll shave you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, get oh, with it. well, I had a question about that. So, and this may be completely bogus or outdated, but back in the day, they used to say, don't shave, don't floss the day before an encounter with a partner that you're not in a closed relationship with or who you've been tested with. Is there any truth to that? Is that? It is. It actually is. So again, when you're, when you get waxed or you shave, you want to at least give yourself 24 to 48 hours because again, you don't know if you nicked yourself anywhere. You want to give the skin a chance to heal a little bit because you can get infection. Flossing your gums and brushing your teeth. Yes, we do say don't do that as a risk reduction. Even though it's a low, a low risk when you're looking at the HIV still, 
So it's high, medium, and low. It's a low risk. It's still a risk. And so, you know, you want to make sure that you're giving people all the information to, so that they can make an informed decision. And I think that's why I don't carry the line anymore, but I used to carry a line of flavored noodles. And this particular company actually worked with a dental hygienist to come up with noodles that was flavored, that was actually good for your teeth and gums and stuff. Because oh, wow. people were worried about the, their breath and stuff like this. So they actually came up with one that was really good for oral sex that so that so people wouldn't have to worry about the their breath. Oh, after or tasting like that after okay. or before. Let's say you ate something or whatever like that. It was it was yeah. So I thought that was really cool. I I don't carry them anymore because of the pandemic. Like I just wasn't, you know, pushing products and I don't have a website anymore. So hopefully once I get my website up and running, I could be able to offer tools like that. Because I don't think people know that there's, there's options out there like that. Yeah. But it's, it's actually, I love debunking myths. And, you know, a lot of myths come with truth. And if people just know the right thing, then, you know, they you're doing your due diligence, right? Yeah. And, I mean, it's really helpful to have all the information. Because to me, things that you do to groom your body and fashion, like it's all part of the same mm-hmm. thing and everybody has their own aesthetic, but then you, sometimes you form these preferences without knowing what other things you might be sacrificing. So for you, if you can still grow your bush back, you might want it. Like, I don't know once you wait all out. Plus, you know, fashion goes in cycles. There was a time when everybody wanted to be totally bare and then people started doing more designs and then some people just want to go all the way back natural. It, it's interesting though, once you think about all the different images we're exposed to about this is the ideal body. Ageism definitely is a big issue because I don't know that I've ever seen gray body hair depicted anywhere. People get gray hair everywhere, <laughs> but you just never see it. It seems like people usually don't discover that. That doesn't click until they get their first gray body hair. They're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know this was going to happen. Or they shave or they die. You know, it's like this, this scary thing to people that you're aging. And I never look at it that way. When I was little, I used to tell my grandma, I can't wait to get, you know, salt and pepper hair like you. And everybody's like, well, I would dye my hair. And I'm like, no, like, I love my grandma. I can't wait to look like my grandma, right? But people try to hide things. And of course, I had, I was so happy when I got like two strands and then I cut my hair and it went away and never grew back. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully as I age, I get my grandma salt and pepper hair. But I mean, I would love that, you know. You know, also as remembering her, she passed, um, would it be, Three years in April, mm. so, 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 yeah, I would, I would love that. You know, I've, I've always embraced my body here. Which I had a conversation with someone is really a touchy subject for me because I'm Muslim and you really can't have body hair. And so oh, I didn't know that. And so you know, when I chose to have or keep my body here and my and if my partners was Muslim, that was an issue, right? Men and women both cannot have body here. And so and so that was a huge issue for me in advocating, especially in the sexual health space, where you have advocates like, yeah, keep your hair, 
And I'm like, you're not, again, you're not thinking culturally on how some folks can't because of religion. You know, I literally never heard of that before. And I know so many. It's a part of cleanliness. Oh, and being cleansed for your partner, for your, your, so, so yeah, I, I, I definitely struggled with it, you know, a lot. I get dinged every now and again on it, but yeah, but again, being in public health, it's like, it's, it's needed, right? I, I am a person with a vagina. I don't want infections. I don't want all the bacteria. I'm in the community. I'm walking more. So now you have sweat and, you know, materials rubbing against and that's a barrier I don't want to shave it you know all these different things that you know that we don't think about pubic hair does for us and shields us from right right that's a really good point that's so it's so interesting too when you think about the things that are going to change in the body as you age that people don't generally discuss because they're so cagey about aging it's it, it can be very handy for other reasons too. Just as all muscles begin to relax, you know, not everything is going to stay in the same position it was when you were a teenager. So just something else to think about. Oh. Well, where can people connect with your brand now? And when you have people come in doing the tutorials, you said you're not just bound to your state. Are these something that people can sign up for online? Yes. Yeah, so right now, we're, you know, obviously um, trying to raise money so that we can create a website and have a more best, have more of, of a reach for folks. But right now we're on Instagram, Prevention Meet Session, and we have a link tree and all of our events, all of our donation buttons, everything that we're doing is, is dumped into our link tree. Also, you can find me on LinkedIn under my name, Nakia T. Outland, MSW, I believe that's how it is on here. Fun fact, I had to change it because I started getting messages from young white teenagers like on, on LinkedIn and come to find out, they, we laughed about it. I met the young man, but he, he had the same initials as me because mine used to be NT Outland on there. And he had the same initials. So all his friends were like DMing me and stuff. So it was really cool. It was really cool. We all got to meet and I was like, and they were like, how cool is it that y'all have the same initials? So, so now it's NT Outlet, I think MSW. But yes, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find my business on Instagram only, Prevention Meet Session. And we look forward to connecting with folks and, and following us and, and being in community. I just, I love being around people. <laughs> Thank you so much. If there was one thing that you could share with everyone and they would instantly understand it, internalize it, and carry it with them for the rest of their lives, what would you want to tell people? What would you want people to know? I think what I would want people to know is something I say all the time, and that's like, be yourself. You know, there's nothing wrong with being yourself. Society tells us so much that we need to be and act like someone else. But what would it look like if we all just was ourselves? I, I say that all the time, you know, just be yourself. And personally with me, I always say I am me. And people be like, oh, that's problematic. It's not because I am me. I bring me everywhere. 
I bring me to corporate meetings. I bring me to community meetings. I bring me to parent-teacher meetings. I bring me to the bar. You're getting the key. Like, you don't, you don't get a different version. You're getting me. And that's easiest for me because I don't have to worry about code switching or remembering what I said here and didn't say here or whatever like that. Now, the only thing you might get, as you heard on this call, is you might get a different outfit. <laughs> that's about it. You might get a different hair color or a different look. But other than that, I'm, I'm just me. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up, high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Yeah.